Welcome back to the Mahma Khan podcast, practical philosophy for everyday living. I have another interview for you today with Mr. Christopher Mastro Pietro. Christopher is a philosopher, writer, uh, director, playwright. He co-authored several books, including uh, Zombies in Western Culture, A 21st Century Crisis, Gnosis in the Second Person, Dispatches from Time Between Worlds, and Dialectic into Dialogos. Uh, he is one of the co-founders of the Verveke Foundation and works very closely with John in the uh, Wisdom Web space. Um, it's an absolute treat to have Christopher on to discuss topics around narrative and the meaning crisis, um, particularly how narrative can afford us meaning in life, getting over nominalism, acquiring wisdom and the perspectives that we need in order to live a good life. And uh, this was certainly a fiery conversation. If you're a fan of the Meaning Crisis content of trying to uh, that I've been putting out over the last while, this one's definitely going to fill in some gaps for you for sure. And if you want the podcasts and essays sent to you every week, make sure to sign up to the Wisdom Dojo Substack. Um, I'm also on YouTube now, so the video content is hosted on YouTube. If you want to check that out, all the links are in the description. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Boom! Yeah, I, I, it's an unbelievable um, crossover between the kind of dialogical, the literary and the philosophical um, in theatre. But there was something that was ringing in my head as you were speaking, which was about Arthur Miller. He said about the Great Depression, that his that reversal of fortune in his family, where suddenly he was like a wealthy person. His father had this great business. Their status was increasing. And then the Great Depression just came and suddenly they had nothing. They had no food. Father didn't have a job. He was sitting around the house all day. They had to move. Um, and all the like material values that he knew were just wiped away in an instant. And that it gave him this hunger for deeper values, for something that was actually real beyond the kind of economic and political. And that that was something he was always trying to find in his plays, in a sense. And I think that really connects as well to like the meaning crisis and to the situation we're in where so much has changed so quickly that that hunger for something that's real and that's, you know, even consistent across these changing civilizations and economies and everything um, would be really cathartic in a way and that theatre could somehow dramatise that. Yeah. yeah. Well, catharsis is a good word for it too because, I mean, we were talking before you pressed record about the fact that a play comes to life when an audience fills it with presence. And there's something about the presence of a play that when it lifts off the page, that it takes on a texture of realness that no other medium I have found quite does. And, and the, the thing about a play too, I mean, it reminds, it reminds me so much of the, of the dialectic that we do and the, the, the idea of doing dialogos because First of all, it's van it's gone. I mean, in the case of Dialogos, they're often recorded, but the sense of presence and experience that you have in the throes of it are animated by the witnessing presence of those who are there, bracing the reality. And it also vanishes at the end, right? Whatever is attained by the end, and whatever is attained at the end of the play, the play's over. And they have to recreate it the next time when they do the next run through. 
but ultimately that particular show will never be again. And so there's a there's a there's a sense of the finiteness of the form, the fact that it meets its end and it vanishes at the end of the three acts or two acts or one act or however many it is. But then there's this repetition, right? That that the drama involves repetition, it involves a finite boundary, and it involves this deep witnessing presence of those who are there to participate it. And that's what seeds it, the particular animating spirit that drives it. And there's something about being in a room, in a theater, when everything is firing on all cylinders, that I think it just creates a sense of presence. There's something numinous about it. And it's not always attained, but when it is, I found it's more of a numinous experience and a ritual experience than just about any art form I've experienced. I mean, music has that quality, dance can have that, all kinds of things can have that quality. But for me, there's some combination of the text and the literary care of the text and the drama that's added by the presence of those witnesses that just create something, you know. Um, you're, you're speaking of Arthur Miller. One of the best experiences I think I ever had in a play was um, seeing a production of The Crucible. And um, here in Toronto, and there's a there's a really great. Uh, I mean, I haven't been there in a while. At least it was it was a, quite a great company back in the day. It was called Soul Pepper Theater here in Toronto, and they they had a mandate of doing classical theater. You know, people like Chekhov and Ibsen and Miller and Reginald Rose and those kinds of folks, and they did a production of The Crucible, which. You know, the, the, the scene at the end when they all come together for the trial and the hysteria of the accusations and the kind of heightened pretend of the horror of the witchcraft, which is imagined and projected, but somehow also made real by the force of suggestion and the force of imagination. And I remember in that moment, the hysteria that the actors managed to procure was so heightened and so real that it felt as though, it made it feel as though there was a presence of something demonic in the room, in the theater. And it was visceral. And I've never felt such a visceral presence of something preternatural created by a performance. And, and I just remember thinking, like, I had to be in that room to feel that, you know, and uh, nothing else could have quite substituted for that. So there's just, there's this crackle. There's something that happens and it's quite incredible when it does. Yeah, and that, that almost, because like, I suppose the context of that play as well in terms of the whole witch trial, truth kind of, I think that's his most performed play as well. It's just been consistently touring for yeah. the entire, since it's been written it's, basically. I mean, it's so, because it's, it's so, so pertinent even now. Yeah. Like it's, you know, the trials around speech and, a lot of the issues are just something that are, yeah. And, but I suppose to feel that ahead of time in a way is so, uh, to be able to put you in that state without being actually in there, there's a kind of the imaginal as well seems to come into it as well as the kind of dialogical, like it's a, a symbolic representation of something that is real, but which you can kind of get a little piece of, or maybe a lot of, I don't, I really don't know what the upper level is, but, um, 
to, that would give you an appreciation for not being involved maybe in a witch trial or the kind That's of it. the dangers of that um That's it. well the play which is so the play profound. gives you the play gives you access to the reality and it's in the play and that I mean you suspend the disbelief and you buy into the reality the conceit of the drama and when you buy into the conceit of the drama you gain access to a dimension that is real that is just as real as anything else is but that entering into the state of play and bearing witness to it credulously not credulously from a propositional sense but credulously in an embodied sense tunes you into something that is difficult to express or to name, but nevertheless has an undeniable reality. You know, that feeling, that numinous feeling that you get when you're in the presence of something and you, you just feel it. There's like an animating spirit there. It's, it's hard to know how to name that or what it is. But there's something that is in that room that is created by the sense of engagement and participation that people are having. And that feels as real as anything else does in that moment. And there's something about the drama that, that conduces that, you know. And that's why plays are meant to be performed. And we were talking about Plato earlier. And the same, I feel, is true of Plato, you know. I mean, it's not... But we're doing a course right now um, for the Rebecca Foundation. We're doing an intensive course on Dialectica de Dialogos, a 12-week course where we're digging deeper into the practice and into the different capacities of the practice. And one of the things we're doing, which I'd been wanting to do for a really long time, is we're doing, as a part of the exercise, we're doing dramatic readings of some of Plato's dialogues, little selections of Plato's dialogues. And I'm just, it's making me aware, even more than I've ever been before, of just how much of the meaning of those dialogues only becomes available in the pragmatics of their dramatization, right? The tone, the characters, the relationships between the characters, all of those things that cannot be seen in a reading of the text, but have to be actually realized when you take one of the characters. Only then, I think, do those dialogues actually take on their full dimension. And only then is there, a, I mean, this is not an original thought. Gonzalez, all kinds of people who have done third-wave Platonism have tuned into this. But, um, but to see it in action is really quite astonishing. Have you, have you done it already? Have you seen, um, has there been any, uh, or is this the first time you're trying it out? Or have, have you done it in previous ones and seen this? Because kind of, I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm just really, really curious. Well, this is the first time we're doing this version of it. And this is the first time we're working that into a course and connecting it to the the dialectic practice. Yeah, yeah. So this is the first time for that. I mean, I've done dramatic readings of Plato a few times in different Mm. contexts. Um, I remember I did it once, even as an undergraduate, you know. And even then I got the sense of, oh, okay, something else is going on here. But I didn't, at the time, I didn't Mm. pursue it fully. And then I've tried it a few other times informally with friends or whatnot. But this was the first time when there was a, an added formality to it and an explicit connection made between what happens in that dramatization and then the development of certain capacities of inquiry and vigilance and a certain way of listening and a certain way of tracking, not just tracking the logical flow of an argument, but tracking the relationship between two characters as one progressively presses an inquiry and confronts someone with their beliefs. 
and the stakes of that and the tone of that, right? The, all all oh, of the pragmatics. 100%. Of that. Yeah. That's so interesting because I, I did um, a couple of acting classes a few years ago because um, I'd never really, I acted in like school plays and stuff, but then kind of as an adult going back doing these acting classes um, was just super profound. Like it really unlocked, we did Harold Pinter's betrayal um, where he does kind of this almost a backwards play about the ending of an affair that goes back to the start of it um, and playing the characters in it. Like it was a group of just random people, different strangers, kind of similar to the circling or to the D logos course when I did it, which is like, you're putting a, situation that's quite intimate with somebody in a sense you have to have these emotions and you have to be embodied and it has to be you can't like shy away into yourself in any sense and so you're you kind of come out into the role and into the performance and then that reacts with other people and it provides kind of a almost a train track for this really profound experience um and i can assume with plato because there's the virtue element to it in a sense like that it's it, it's another layer on top of that because maybe the playwright that's writing the play is is writing something that's dramatically excellent they're you know they have certain goals and what they're writing but maybe the goal isn't you know the acquisition of wisdom which probably adds another layer if you you know get into the seat and actually do it um it seems like such a yeah like to turn the dialogue and the imaginal and to bring it to kind of together in a way it seems perfect it's an interesting question that you bring up about what the presence of virtue is in your in your standard classical play and to what degree that's an object of the story and what presence that has it's an interesting question i'm not i'm not actually sure as you raise that question because i think of you know i think of some of the great canonical classical plays that are most celebrated and most of them that i can think of have a really a pretty profound orientation to virtue mm. you know and it may be often by it may be often through vice that almost in an ironic or negative reference that virtues are contemplated i think of miller as a really good example of that you know or uh you know but i think of some of the like you know i think of someone like chekhov or you know i'm so many of his plays seem to revolve around the 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 aporia around the cultivation of virtue how elusive it is how difficult it is how thwarting it is to all of the people who are pursuing it just as it's thwarting to people in a dialectic when they're trying to propose at it you know, how must we live and how might we live well and how might we tangle with those aspects of us that seem determined to thwart our better judgments and lead us into vice and lead us into those aspects of ourselves that are most petty and most self-denying. And yet in the offing, there always seems to be, at least in those plays, I mean, I don't know, this isn't completely generalizable, of course, but I just think of some of those beautiful canonical plays and how there is this toe toward virtue, even if it's an ironic presence in the story. And I wonder about that. You know? It's kind of unavoidable. Sorry, I was just like, as you were speaking, because it, uh, it just it clicked for me in a sense that it's all about character. I mean, all 
plays are about character like that's the you know the plot comes out of the character i think aristotle was wrong in that regard but the character even in depicting bad character which might be easier than depicting good character i don't know i mean sometimes it's easier to spot but that that there's yeah it casts that shadow of even in the really bad you can see what the good would you you can see the absence of the good um, that's the bigger picture so i think there's such a fascinating because for me like something that aristotle really messed up was connecting virtue ethics with narrative ethics which i think mcintyre kind of went back in after virtue and plugged those together a bit more that it was like the ethics virtue ethics in a sense takes out it like abstracts the virtues out of the narrative whereas in the narrative the virtues are embodied in the characters but in a first for a first person perspective i guess for us to try and like a golden mean kind of practice of developing virtue um it has to be done in that kind of practice based way rather than absorbing it you know what i mean as a a fourth wall or as an audience member is it maybe is it just a different delivery mechanism or a different type of practice um but it strikes me that there's a deep connection because of character like that's the thing that unites the ethics and the narrative um together yeah i think you're right about that i think there's a real profound intuition to that idea that character is somehow where these patterns come together and that when we're talking about character we're talking about a kind of pattern we're talking about a rhythm we're talking about something that is <sighs> i mean that's why there's so often these connections made between very complex canonical characters and certain archetypal motifs because there's this way in which a well-drawn character is suffused with a certain pattern of being in the world that can't really be reduced to one definition or expression. Good characters are fraught with contradiction. They're paradoxes, basically. Good characters are paradox, right? There's usually some combination of virtue and vice that are inextricably linked together. And that the very thing that seeds the character their power and their potency in the world is also the very thing that causes them to be self-undermining, whether it leans to the comedic or to the tragic, that seems to be a presence of that. And so there's something about a really good character and their, their way of manifesting the pattern of a virtue or virtuosity that somehow gathers together the paradox of the way that we encounter virtues in the first place, which is to say we encounter them negatively so often. We encounter them as a felt absence or a lack in experience, and that in trying to orient to them, we always feel that there's this negative reference to the orientation, because it is always more than what we have, more than what we see. And... Um, and that somehow the really well-drawn character gathers that tension together and lives out the tension so that by stepping into the footfalls of the character, you're stepping into the very tension of being embodied inside that problem, right? Having the sense of the finite toward the virtue and also being hopelessly limited in the process and, and suffering that tension as they so often do, right? And would you so would you agree with Plato? Because I know Plato at the end of the Republic kind of gives this warning about drama and about poetry in a way. Um, I yeah I don't I'm I'm kind of 
I'm conflicted on that in one way because writing dramatically, there is certain kind of like you're you're limited in certain ways. Like you have to depict things in a way that's narratively appealing, and that narrative appeal kind of shapes people in a certain way. Like the characters have to be a certain, you know, somewhat not like well in a play they have to be real people essentially, but they have to be at a very extreme point. It has to be you know the heightened essence of what is what is going uh when things are really going wrong in a way and so that can paint a kind of picture i think um of human life but i wonder do you do you write that warning do you think it's you know um or is it just a small part of a bigger picture that's a really good question i mean i that really that really uh that part of the Republic always trips people, doesn't it? It's always like they, 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 they're they nodding, they're nodding, they're nodding, they're nodding, they get almost, to that book yeah. and they go, what? What do I do about this? I mean, in one level, it's like a straightforward performative contradiction, right? Because yeah. look, look, look at Plato's form. Plato carries an artistic form. And so, you know, there is a note of irony in him making that admonition on the one hand and carrying it through an artistic form on the other hand. And you've got to imagine, you've got to imagine yeah. that there's something witty and self-conscious about that tension of saying one thing and performing another and living in the tension of having done so. And I can't help but think that there's something like that going on there. So maybe that's one thing. I mean, I guess the, the big answer is like, I don't know. I'm not sure what to make of it. I mean, like everyone else, it puzzles me. It interests me. Um. There is something in it, though, like, well, let's go back to theater for a second, right? One of the things I found, one of the things that had me stop doing theater, aside from the fact that it was just so time-consuming and came at the cost of pretty much everything else, was that, you know, the culture around the artistry of theater, I, th I saw it being, to some degree, quite precious, quite self-involved. There's a way in which, you know, the arts, any kind, can become very self-involved. It can kind of become, it can become a way of making more precious the thing that we've brought into it. I see that happening a lot with theater, for instance, that theater is being leveraged to convey a predetermined message with certain ideological aims. Right. Or it's meant to basically be a kind of uh, it's be become an applicator, like a transmission device for I want to say this and I'm going to create a play in order to deliver this message. And you can kind of feel that you can kind of hear the punchline. And there is now I'm, I'm not saying this is Plato's critique. I don't think so. But but there's something about the caution around how the arts are used that I hear in the offing sometimes there. And to me, that, that becomes the question is, okay, well, like, what, what is the, how open-ended or closed-ended is the function of this particular exercise, right? Is, are the arts being used as a, as a, as a form of contemplation, as a form of inquiry? Or are they being used to fetishize something or to decorate something that we already have 
already made and that we just want to adorn. And there's something very self-involved about the adornment of something with the use of craft and the arts, as opposed to the use of the arts as just a means of contemplating or a means of raising questions into consciousness that maybe couldn't be raised before that because they required the voice of a character to give them body and context and reality. And only when they're given character are they given reality. And then all of a sudden they're made conscious in a way they couldn't have before, which is exactly what's going on in the dialogues of Plato. So it might be a difference in, you know, when we talk about the arts and poetry, we can talk about them as devices of adornment, or we can talk about them as crafts of contemplation, something like that, you know. And to me, that those are completely different categories of experience and different practices entirely that have almost nothing else, nothing to do with one another, except insofar as they bear some formal similarities. Yeah, so. it's almost like a artwork versus propaganda kind of thing. Like, is Basically, he warning just against yeah, propaganda versus it. true artwork? Like, because, yeah, exactly what your point is so well taken in terms of so much theater that even in my own experience I've seen, it starts off with a pre recorded message in a sense. It's like, this is the point we're going to drive home. So the whole play will just be harping on about something, you know, some social issue or something. And um, it, it's not it's not the magic of theater, the magic of any storytelling that people really love. It's just like, okay, whatever this is. It's kind of like the King Richard bit in Shakespeare. Where it's like, Oh, he's the King, you know, he can kill me. So we'll all kind of clap whenever he comes out and that's the, it's gotta be done. Um, but I think it's the, yeah, it's the death of art. And it's also the, I mean, it opens the door to all kinds of manipulation. And I do think manipulation is very, key to it in a sense of the use of an audience to enforce certain ideas and like what's the opposite of ma manipulation i suppose promoting autonomy rather than trying to unconsciously control people you're trying to empower them to ultimately govern themselves in a, a, the best way possible which i think really great stories do free us up in that sense or, or inspire us in a sense of freedom to follow the good, the good or freedom to participate in the good. They afford us that connection in a way. Um, but that kind of discards the story a little bit. If, I think if the story becomes the object of that, then it becomes a kind of idolatry. Um, I don't know if you'd agree with that, but I would, I think that's really well said. I think that's really well said. I'm sort of hearing you saying like the, you know, the difference between the story and the propaganda is that the story somehow backs you onto yourself again. It gives itself over to you as an open question to be adopted in a way that is native to your life and your own experience. That's not to say it's endlessly relative, but that it's provoking you, right? It's foisting you with your own responsibility and backing you up onto those fundamental grounds that you're standing on already. And now, all of a sudden, you have a question to ask yourself. And that question doesn't have to be a, literally a question, right? It's, it's, a, it's a question of being. It's like it's a, it's a certain inquiry into the way that you live, the way that you believe, the way that you frame your relationship with the world. Because you've spent two hours tracing the footsteps of a character who has this particular who who symbolizes and embodies a particular posture toward existence. 
And you've stepped into that posture now. You've filled out that body with your attention, and you've tracked it. All of a sudden now, you've had the experience of embodying this particular way of existing. And now you wake up from the dream at the end of the play, and you're thrown back out of that body, and you're thrown back into your own, and you land inside of yourself again. And you land with some of questions that are posed by the way of existence that that person embodied. And now they are yours to ask and yours to live out. And that's very different from watching something that tries to invite you into itself to become a part of it and make you member to something that has nothing to do with who you are, that has no bearing on what you've brought into it, but that is entirely something apart that you can subscribe to or not. That's a very, very different experience. I'm hearing that distinction in what you're saying. Is that, is that fair? 100%, absolutely. And it, it leads, I think, to another, to an even deeper point um, that you'd made in your, the essay that I was reading, The Symptomatology of the Meaning Crisis, which is the pseudo-religious ideologies or the rise of kind of the modern mythologies that are capturing a lot of people now because there is this narrative void and that our hunger is so strong for it. I mean, there must be more stories now through the media than there's ever been. I mean, people are just living in a story all of the time. Like, social media has them, video games have them. Like, every app or every restaurant has to have some sort of story now that it invites you to live within and to try and monetize itself in a way. So we really live in an age of that, trying to incorporate people into stories in a way that is... um just yeah freaky when you think about it to be honest so i wonder like i try going to that kind of meta narrative level because you have a particular play and then maybe that play embodies the type of pattern of but i know like the hero meta mythology with peterson's work or um joseph campbell and that kind of optimal pattern of adaptive behavior that we see in myths um that can be kind of that can be used to manipulate people in that way or it can be used to kind of empower them or to give them yeah to ask those questions um so how do you see i suppose the the movement from the individual myth of a play to the meta myth the meta narrative or is that something you're interested in it's a good question so the the meta myth meaning that that sort of archetypal structure that is that is visible multiply through different kinds of myths, different kinds of stories, that sort of Campbell-Petersonian angle that you're talking about, right? That's what you mean by the meta-myth. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's almost as though different, like the great works, the so-called great works of fiction, and certainly the great works of theater, seem to access different features of that meta-myth. I don't know that there is... It's not as though there's some kind of one-to-one -one mapping, but that there are different melodies, different variations on a theme, different ways of accenting those central motifs, or different ways of taking perspectives on them. And I think they're multiply realizable, I guess, if I can use that term. And it's in them being multiply realizable that we have all of these different variations of narrative that all seem to kind of orbit around some of these central melodies. 
and they all stand somewhere completely different. But they are all looking, or they're all, I think, attending to a lot of the same patterns. It's just that they're stand, there's this unique context that they're speaking from. And the, unique, uh, the uniqueness of the, their context, their specificity, is actually what gives them their embodiment, right? You know, you hear this said a lot. You hear this said a lot by storytellers, both in theater and film and in literature. You hear people say things like, you know, the more specific the story is, the more universal it becomes. It's a paradox, right? Um, it's like, well, how can that be? You would think if you just generalized it as much as possible, it would be more, more universal. But somehow, no. Somehow it's the very specificity that makes it realizable. And it's the specificity that gives it its embodiment, its where from, its context, its living vitality. And so in, I, I have this sense that, you know, those myths, those stories, those characters that happen to play out some fundamental rhythm or pattern that, that says something true, that captures something essential about some dimension of our nature or behavior, all have immediately strike some kind of resonance with this through line, this central melody of what it is to be a person. But what it is to be a person is so, like, it's so multi-aspectual that how could you hope to capture it Sing singularly? You can't. It's, it's, that's why you need this ab these absolute moments of specificity just to listen for it. You know, that's not, I, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky question. I'm trying to, I'm sort of flailing around. Well, uh, yeah, I know. I apologize. I probably didn't phrase no, it very no, well. Don't. It's just kind of come no, up. But okay. um, very much it, what I'm hearing is like that it's the particular to the universal in a way, like the yeah. path to the universal has to go through the particular. You can't just jump up right. and, you know, touch God. You have to, <laughs> there's this, a journey there that has to be undergone um, and that each in the specificity of each character, it kind of mirrors the specificity of ourselves. But there's this kind of weird, like, form of an individual, individual form kind of problem that we're like, uh, we're particulars, but somehow there's a universal thing. And how do you kind of, yeah, experience one to the other? But I guess I find, I, I bring up the hero meta mythology because it, um, for me, when I learned it from Peterson initially, I'd read it from Joseph Campbell, and I didn't really find his take on it as transformative young definitely just completely you know blew blew my brains with that kind of thing of that that idea of constructing the narrative in such a way that it could afford you transformation in life um and that without it it's almost like the the suspension of disbelief is necessary for the transformation to take place like if you if you don't and but it's like it's a fiction in a way but also by doing it you can kind of make it true but if you don't believe in the fiction it's not going to be true there's yeah. a and i think for a lot of young people now it's like they're they're stuck you know they yeah. can't they can't believe it no and uh, that's yeah it's, it's a good point it's there's so many so many places to go with this at this moment i feel the different sort of branches um i mean the it occurs to me sometimes that our relationship to fiction is just not is is somehow misframed 
And we have this binary idea that, you know, there's sort of the life we live literally, concretely, materially. And then there's sort of the, the fiction or the mythologized version of ourselves that exists in some kind of imaginal space that interacts with the life lived literally, but only sort of in an epiphenomenal fashion. But the, honestly, the more time that goes by, the more I look at my own life, the less that seems to hold water, at least for me. Like, it seems to me that, that the fictive nature, even the way that memory works, the way that we frame the narratives of our lives, the autobiographical, in terms of those narrative motifs, we are constantly, constantly creating and being created fictively. And there is something about our fundamental constitution and identities that is imagined. But it's imagined in accordance with certain formal structures, certain symbolic anchors, and those are recurring. And I think that's what Jung tapped into so beautifully is this idea that the symbolic is not less real than the literal. We have it backwards. It's more real. It's more real, but it's only across time with a certain attention that you start to realize that you're being lived out and are living out patterns of symbolic um, patterns that are ultimately inexpressible, but that are gathered together in the custody of certain symbols that become ways of imagining yourself and ways of imagining the particular kind of existence that you have. And so, you know, watching a play or reading a novel, I think it somehow when we soften the attention that we have to them, they begin to become there is a kind of a there's a poetic character to the way that identity is constructed in the first place. And it's that happens without us trying to make it happen. It just does. It just happens that way, right? There's a, there's a foundation of poetic imagination that undergirds who we are. And that I think we're constantly straining against that because I think we have this binary distinction between the imagined and the real or the literal and the fictional. But the fact is that fiction plays a pretty industrious role in shaping us. And Done. once yeah. that is integrated properly, then there is a certain poetic facility with life that I think starts to become available because the way in which life becomes poeticized, becomes the way in which it means, it signifies, and its signification, its meaningfulness, becomes the very thing that orients it and gives it its vitality. 
right? And so then the craft of poetry, when reckoning with a person's own life and identity and purpose and sense of meaning in life, becomes essential and indispensable. It's not some kind of accessory or luxury. It's like there's some deep, deep symbolic necessity in gathering oneself together poetically, knowing that so much of what we remember about ourselves is imagined in the first place because it's artfully reconstructed in ways that we still don't fully understand. And so I think that there's something that happens in the encounter with great fiction that seeds the memory of that reality, that something about all of this is a consequence of the way that it is oriented to certain symbols that express the inexpressible. And we are such symbols. Try to define a person. Try to sum a person up. Anybody. Even the meagerest, most simple person that you could find. No. A person, as we understand them, is such a symbol, right? It is, it is that the face of a person is the gathering together of inexpressibly complex patterns in the form of something that is subject to a poetic imagination. Anyway, I have no idea Man. where I... Where, that, where but that set off so many bells in terms because it what it, yeah I mean that that framing of the binary between reality and fiction to reminded me so much of just this kind of nominalism trap that we've been in in the modern world of this distinction between physical reality and then mental stuff just being fake um and it reminded me of when that actually broke for me which was um through Peterson and also through Verveke's work through relevance realization essentially that at the bottom of perception is this valuing process like you can't see things without making these and i mean i study attention now it's a big part of my phd so like the even the most straight lay scientists are talking about like oh structures of priority regulation and stuff and you're like okay that's valuing things (laughs) like that's at the bottom of our factual judgments is this prioritizing valuing structure so it's you know and for me, that that causes a thing of like, oh, the stories are real. Like the stories are like all the myths, like big into ancient Greek myths and all those myths. And I was like, suddenly, like in this world of like, oh, my God, they're actually talking about real things. This the transitions of attention, the transformations of attention, the powerful motivational and emotional forces that act on our attention. And it's a very different world in that case and it's also a different responsibility i think in a sense to begin that process of transformation of dealing with those things but it does seem leaping over that binary is is definitely one of the first hurdles to contesting with the the complexity of the situation we're actually in maybe i don't know leaping is a good word for it too because there's it's not it's not an inference we can't infer our way through it there's something, it's something embodied and experiential, I think, that happens. And I think it happens when you just start to pay attention in a certain way to the patterns in your own life. Have you ever, have you ever had that experience where you look back and you, and you realize that something is actually being lived out in your experience? There's a pattern and a structure to your experience that you're not conscious of, that you're not over-determining. That's not logical and does, doesn't follow logically from anything, but that is nevertheless present and becomes harder and harder and harder and harder to ignore. And it's guided by attention. It's guided, as you say, by some kind of implicit valuation that has projected a belief onto the world and organized the world and organized your perception in accordance with that belief. 
That's why Socratically, uncovering the belief that is implicit that you don't know you have becomes the object of the practice, right? What Pierre Grimes called the pathologos, the thing that you don't know you believe, but that you do implicitly, having acquired it someday, unbeknownst to you, and that it is invisibly organizing and ordering your perceptions in a certain arrangement that is completely unconscious to you. And that so much of what you hold to be true and valuable and real is a consequence of that has been pre-consciously framed. And then finding a moment where you discover that suddenly opens a sense of possibility about the question of what's real. That is pretty, it's quaking, but it's incredible. Yeah, it's incredible because it, it is that like default operating system in a way of this kind of low resolution categorical system that we use and to i suppose to understand that that is so like I, a lot of peterson's work rings through to that in terms of that it's such like basic story structure i mean he talks about those ideas of like the mother and the father the divine king and mother nature and i think we live out the perhaps the only transition from that is to then become aware that that's what you're doing in a sense that to become have that metacognitive awareness of your framing and to take the extra moral effort to readjust yourself to a more rational position, in a sense, that you have to, like, even, I suppose, I'm sure for the most trained people that have done tons of work on it, they probably still have to do that when there's some kind of anomaly, and you frame it in one way, like this Israel-Hamas situation, I suppose, at the moment, and, you know, you bring automatically preconceived judgments to complex situations, and frame it in terms of oftentimes a simplistic narrative which causes you know it prevents you from reaching any kind of truth so it almost seems like that socratic way of humility the pursuit of truth and wisdom is the inevitable consequence of recognizing the perennial problem of our our inherent framing of situations and that the framing isn't optional like it's almost like there's only one way of dealing with it like <laughs> that's right that's right that's well said and the idea that just the, the, just the realization at any given moment that the way that you're framing, the categories that you're using to frame the possibilities mm -hmm. of what you're perceiving are not essential. You know, they're, they're not essential. And if they're not essential and they could be otherwise, then it leaves a pretty big question in the margins, right? It's like, okay, then what am I not seeing? And there's usually quite a lot, right? What am I not seeing? What, what, what set of categories am I using to dispose the world and to dispose my relationship with it that actually might be false categories? They might be framed in such a way that they're not necessary. And that's that Socratic irony, that sense of that always, you know, always standing from a, an awareness of ignorance is just one tiny adjustment, but it's, I mean, it's a significant adjustment, but it's also very small, an adjustment to make in any given situation to realize, hang on, there might be more going on here than I'm actually aware of. And that might be true of some large-scale contentious situation, but it might also just be true of me and my life and 
the simplest, the simplest of my relationships. Exactly. Like I, I might not actually know this person as well as I think I do. There might be much more to this person than I, than meets the eye, even if I've known them for a long time, even if I think I have a perfect purchase on them. It's quite possible that there's something about the symbolic configuration of what they see that is not matching what I am perceiving. And so in effect, we're living in different worlds with different sets of um, signals. And boy, when you get to the bottom of that with another person and you realize that you've somehow been perceiving one another in the world in a completely different way, it's like it is an incredible experience because you just realize how so many things have just been automatically predetermined. And that when you get to the bottom of that, you know, and you break something wide open that way, first of all, the process of doing it is really a profound process because then, then that insight, that sort of systemic insight in your framing and in your attention doesn't just become local. It doesn't just apply to the thing that was broken asunder, the frame that was broken asunder by that one insight between two people. Then it becomes, it has global implications. It's like, okay, if I got this wrong, what else have I gotten wrong? And if I have the capacity to have this insight to reframe this problem, perhaps I also have that capacity to do that with a host of other problems. That postural adjustment then becomes replicable in other areas and other domains, and then it can cascade. And I think that's, I think that's, that's the metanoia, I think, that we hear referred to so often, or that we refer to so often, this like the turning in one tiny context, in one modest relationship, can enable a turning in so many other ways, you know? And I think that's like, a good way of understanding the Socratic project. And that's a good, then that's why it has to begin exactly where you are, right? That's why, like the character in the play, you have, you have to begin where you are. You begin with who you are. You begin where you stand. That's how it happens. You don't, you don't venture out anywhere. I mean, you might. You might geographically, but you, like you, you, know, you begin where you are. You begin with yourself. Yeah, and that we can do it. I mean... It reminded me, it was something I thought about with, um, with my girlfriend, if she, like, it's easy if your girlfriend gives out to you and is, you know, saying you're not cleaning up, you know, this place is a mess and you just get, create this category of like nagging, giving out person that, you know, is just, and it, it becomes, they become a caricature, you become a caricature to them right. and you end up playing this very simplistic game in a way. And what I learned to do at a point was to deal with that category that i'm making and recognize that it's actually part of a much larger mystery which is my girlfriend that is unsolvable that i can never get to the bottom of that can't be categorized and to try and categorize all of her is to do a violence to her in a sense it's to try to reduce her being into something which i can control it's that having mode versus the being mode problem and that that insight into that situation made me realize that i'm doing that in my larger life as well like there's all types of situations that i'm bringing that those narrow categorizations to that are affecting what i'm seeing but it's not what i'm seeing that's the problem it's my mode of seeing that need needed change and so 
And that happens all the time. Like I'm, I'm constantly performing those operations to try and open up again, to have that kind of reciprocal opening rather than the, the narrowing of tighter and tighter categories. And, and people get stuck in it. I mean, it's probably a bit of what hell is, is to live in that very narrow, flat world that uh, has no mystery or love on it anymore. I mean. Oh, man, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. And that context... I think that's that's truly where it begins. Like it's there's nothing like a relationship mm. to throw you back on your mooring, say. And there's nothing like it to show you how you have implicitly arranged the significance of certain actions in accordance with a broader meaning system. Then when you get very closely emotionally entangled, bound up deeply and intimately with someone who does not necessarily tune to the same signals and so something one gesture that means something sig very significant to me because it signals something that connects up to that broader system doesn't mean anything to you you did it without even thinking about it to you it had no weight no gravity but to me this one little gesture boy i've experienced that i'm gathering that you have to just by your reaction i mean who in a relationship hasn't experienced this right it's like you do something and to you 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 don't you're not even you just throw it out there it doesn't even matter but somehow it it fits itself into somebody's meaning system somebody's way of understanding the significance of actions and gestures and what they mean symbolically and when you encounter someone who has a different symbolic apparatus than you have. I don't mean symbols in that fundamental sacred sense, but the way in which certain gestures signify are categorized and they don't match, as inevitably sometimes they don't, then it's almost as though you have to like renegotiate the significance of the way that you behave and what it means and what it portends. It's like a renegotiation, not only of your relationship with the person, but of yourself and what you've taken for granted. It's like, I do this not thinking it has any significance, but if it has this significance to you, perhaps there is in fact an intrinsic significance to this behavior, this gesture, this way of speaking, this way of behaving. And I did it without ever thinking that it was important or that it held any gravity. And yet, you reflecting something significant about it back at me. And I can do one of two things. I can say, well, you're just being too sensitive or too precious or, you know, or I can just flagellate myself and capitulate and say, oh, goodness gracious, I'm a terrible person. I'm sorry. I will live entirely in accordance with your signals from now on. Or you can do the hardest thing of all, which is like you sit down together and you're like, okay, hang on. This didn't mean to you what it meant to me. Let's figure that out. Like, and then to do that, that's an inquiry. And you can't do that work without doing self-inquiry at the same time. Because then it backs you onto your own, you know, the, the, your, basically your own complexes, right? The, 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 the clusters of patterns that, that live themselves out through you that are invisible, that become visible, reflected back in the eyes of someone who is deeply invested in you. Boy, it's like, it's heavy stuff, but it's important, but it's very taxing too. And I think that's a lot, a lot of the reason why it's hard to undertake that, you know.
it is a commitment, I think, and a commitment to a particular way of life, in a sense, that you have to say, I'm willing to do this. And if you're going to be married and have a long-term relationship, even long-term friendships, you know, those totally. you're going to face those battles. And if if you have somebody that won't do that dance with you, that relationship's not going to last because I, I over time things are going to happen and it's going to be very difficult um to have that process of adapting and i think perhaps more and more these days people are finding that more difficult even just from a skill level to actually make that change in themselves which precludes you from deeper relationships in a sense if you're categorizing people as terrifying judgmental awful things you're not really going to get to the good bit <laughs> behind that. No. It, you know, it's going to stop you at the door. Um, and so, yeah, I, I wonder, can the play, can play and in that way, dramatize the dramatizing, can that change that categorical structure in a sense? Like you're, as you're watching it, your framing dies with the framing of the character. You're like, oh my God, I am this character. The character faces that moment where they have to discard the dream they've been living and you do a little bit as well. It's absolutely right. I think that's really true. And I don't think it happens in this sort of moralizing sense, right? Like, mm. I don't think you're standing apart and saying, well, this person's acting this way and I judge that to be unwise. It's like, no, you're implicated. You're walking it with them. And I don't even think, I don't even think that the connection, the sort of recursive throwback onto yourself and your own life, I don't even think it's always conscious. I think it actually probably mm. is most impactful when it's not conscious, right? It's, I just went and I just experienced a story, but something happened and it internalized. And there's some pattern that I tuned into that surfaced, it's like you hear people say that, you know, all the time where they watch, they went to watch a play or a film or something and it stayed with them. And they didn't know why mm. it stayed with them, but they kept thinking about it. They kept thinking about it. Quotes from it kept, kept coming out of their mouths. They found themselves like, a you know, they found themselves taking on the posture of a character. Like they started acting it out without even knowing why they were doing yeah. it. And yet doing that somehow gave them access to something about their experience that they didn't have. And, and I think it's, it's all of that happens, all of that happens almost unreflectively. But then when you add reflection to it, then all of a sudden, I think you can, you can pry the, you can, you can use reflection as a lever to open that process even more and make it more explicit, and make the inquiry more explicit. And I think that's what the dialectic, like, that's what dialectic is trying to do, right? It's trying to take that unconscious process, and it's trying to make it a little bit more conscious, you know? But it's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to do. Yeah. And he, he probably develops at a point as well, a kind of, like, metacognitive perch, because I remember that, you know, when I was younger, like, that whatever movie I watched, like, you know, I thought I was the character, you know, you were going around, you were telling the jokes to your friends, like you were just automatically kind of in it. But as I got older, you know, that doesn't happen as much. You're more like, there might be a little bit, you're, I, I, probably it's involuntary in a sense as well of what you become grateful to, but it affords you a certain amount of negotiation more, I think, with your behavioral repertoire that you acquire through 
whatever kind of uh, consumption um, of other people, I guess, because it happens in relationships as well. Like if you hang out with somebody enough, you start to talk the same way or you say oh, yeah. similar things or like there's all that oh, kind yeah. of because we're such imitation is so fundamental to our bootstrapping process. So like these are, I guess, because like, a, a playwright or somebody sits down to write a, an ideal either an ideal in the negative sense or in the positive sense for imitation in a way of like, this is like either the really bad life, which implies the good life or the really good life, which implies the bad life. And yeah. it gives us a, a kind of panoply of imitations that we can perform in a way that yeah, maybe you just wouldn't get that. accidentally. I think so. I think it takes a particular disposition that is part of all of us kind of unspools it, unravels it across time, which is to say, you know, in the diachronic fashion in a narrative form, and then plays out the sum of consequences that follow inevitably from having that dispositional state, right? So, you know, it's like you take, like, a character that is sort of canonically avaricious or a character that is canonically deceitful or canonically ambitious, somebody like Macbeth, and what you do is you play out the state of being in relation to the world accented by that particular stance. And it plays out in such a way. And I don't, it's hard to tell, you know, what, like, because I tend to think that most of the, you know, there's a certain premeditation to sitting down to writing I mean, you would. I should ask you this question because you're a playwright, and I'm curious to know what your experience is. My experience has been, yeah, there's a certain amount of premeditation, but that top down only goes so far. The bottom up populates the rest, and ultimately, I don't think there's a hope of writing anything worthwhile if it's too overdetermined by a meticulous structure. There's a structure, but then the structure's ultimately made flesh by the spontaneous intuition that comes in the throes of the creative process. There's an unconscious movement that populates the form and that populates the narrative. And I think that when you're tracking and following that unconscious movement and you're allowing it to talk itself through you spontaneously, that's when these perennial patterns actually start to make themselves known. And that's when the specificity corresponds to the universal. And you can see the difference. It's kind of the difference that you articulated before between the propaganda and the art. Because the art involves a spontaneous intuition, whereby the patterns that are implicit in our thinking and framing are made known and are unraveling in the art of creation. But the propagandist the, the, is all top-down. It's all pre-framed. It's all prefigured. It's all, I'm structuring this in such a way to get to a particular endpoint. And it doesn't have that spontaneous muse. It's not faithful to the muse. Whereas the spontaneous work is faithful to the muse. And the amount of complexity, psychological complexity, that we find in the greatest plays, whether it be Miller or Chekhov or whomever, the psychological complexity of the, is, like, is so vast that it can, in, in my view, it can't possibly be consciously premeditated. It just can't. Yeah, it's too if it is, complex. I'm se severely jealous. <laughs> well, me <laughs> too. Me too. Yeah. 
I think it just comes out. <laughs> you know, it just comes out. So having said all of that, that's just my speculation. I'm not alone in, in speculating that. Um, you know, I think there's a certain amount of the, the ego is managing some part of the process and there's conscious craft at work. There's no doubt there is top down, but so much of the brilliance and genius that comes in the things we celebrate mm. happens in the spontaneous emergence of the intuition that is made known when one pattern is unspooled across time and finds its fit into a context of specificity that braces it and that gives it reality. And there's some, there's something about that that can't really be managed. So how does that land on your experience, having been a playwright yourself, having been a writer, as a writer now, you know, experienced in the creative process? Like, how does that land on you? How do you, how does that, how do you encounter that? Yeah, I mean, it lands very well. And it, even in the context of dialogical stuff, because I find a lot of my best ideas and writing stuff have been found in dialogue with other people as well which is very spontaneous like even if i'm just like i'm like look i'm writing this thing this is and you just spout off about a bunch of stuff and you're trying to tell them the story that you're telling and you're just making things up in it without kind of knowing what you're doing but you're filling in the gaps in a way that you couldn't actually if i just sat down and just tried to do it i couldn't do it like it requires a certain um pressure and spontaneity to actually come up but I suppose what I, because I was always very like bottom up, just like puking stuff out. So structure for me was like a later addition. So I use like an opponent processing relationship between the structure and between the more just kind of um more creative stuff where I'd use, I use plans to constrict it. And then once it's constricted a certain amount, then I just go and just try and see where I can get to. Then I get stuck and I go back to the structure and I try and use that to get me another inch ahead. And then I'll go again and try and get a little further. It's just always this game of like kicking the can down the road of like, how much better can I make this? Like, can I go another bit? Can I go another bit? What about this choice? What about this choice? But it it is always, I mean, even in dreams and stuff, like I'll have things in dreams that I'm like, this is the character is supposed to do this or something. I'm like, where, where is that coming from? Like, it's not, um, there's no... Yeah, like the the conscious bit is a very small part, I think, of of any of that. Like, um, but it is, yeah, it does have to be honed. But yeah, I don't know those great guys like Miller and stuff, man. I've been studying all my sons for this play a lot, and you're just like, how did he, how did he do this? Like, where are these? Like, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't like. Is it dramatic form? Is it not dramatic form? But you're just like, this is just you know, they're the muse, really. Um. Which makes it so inspiring, maybe. Something makes cares so about what? us out there, perhaps. Makes it so inspiring. Um, yeah, yeah. That the, it gives a sense of almost like the unconscious or something deeper at play than just our um, conscious minds. Yeah. I think that's true. And I think when you hear people describe their process, generally, I, I, I mean... I scarcely hear anyone talk about an artistic process that's genuinely really generative that doesn't involve that. I mean, how could it, you know, just how could it? Where it's like our, our, our conscious capacity to manage complexity is, is formidable, but it's also pretty limited. You know, mm. we can't account for every factor and we can't map things as thoroughly as we would like to. And, um, and it's just, it's just so obvious, 
I think that so much of that process is unconscious. But that, and you've put it really well, what you've described is essentially a dialectic between what we call the muse, what we call the sort of the unconscious and spontaneous influences of whatever is behind the framing. Miller, and, what was and, Miller described as trying to get hit by lightning? He said his, his writing process was running around with an umbrella trying to get hit by lightning, basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, but that you need some kind of structure of, of management as well and, and organization to know what to like it's it's one thing to be able to collect the rainwater great but then like how do you funnel it and what do you do with it and of course there's top-down structure involved but it's uh, mm. it's definitely not the whole story and i think it yeah. often makes the difference between something that's really that taps into whatever whatever axis it is in us that that goes all the way down to the ground floor um that goes into the groundwater and that's that the sort of that more generalizable mythic structure I think that you were talking about before that's somewhere under that's somewhere at the groundwater mm. and so much of the time I think of an artist is spent trying to somehow find the axis find the the channel down there and um and also to have the maturity and the discipline to know what to do with that when it surges up. It's tough. Yeah, it's a lot of challenges, all right. <laughs> but least, it does, yeah. it reminds me of Dialogos as well. I mean, following the Logos, and I, I've learned the same in martial arts as well for a long time, which is following the that that type of flow state that you can initiate physically in combat as well, um, even in sparring and movement, and that there's you can tap into that kind of creative pattern that seems to just be available um and is renewing in a sense um i know it feels feels very meaningful anyway um that's, so maybe that's yeah part that's, of it but and, and, i'm sorry we've gone think, over time here christopher but yeah oh, okay. if you've got a spare yeah. minute yeah yeah of course oh it's been a great discussion it's uh and it's something that honestly i, I this kind of stuff is so fun to talk about and it's mm -hmm. relevant it's relevant to all of the more overtly philosophical projects. And it doesn't always get its, its fair play, you know, in, in the discussion. But I think it's critical. And one of the things I'm most interested in exploring right now is the connection between dialectic and dialogos and the artistic project and how one can be put in service of the other and because i honestly i see dialectic as an art form like that i think that's what it is primarily you know because it has it is as creative as it is it's more creative than it is logical or inferential it's it's fundamentally it's like creative improvisation with a kind of a, a an overtly contemplative dimension and a more formal structure of inquiry but really within that it's improv it's improv-oriented a certain way. It is an inherently theatrical, performance-based exercise. It is inherently dramatic because it's inherently relational, and it is a certain kind of drama put in service of a certain kind of inquiry that is both reflexive, meaning it forces us back onto the place from which we stand and speak and forces us to become more conscious of what that place is and what it looks like and feels like, 
but also orients us to the mystery beyond the scope of the place simply that we're standing in. And, um, and I think in that sense, it shares a lot in common with the great dramas, just, you know, with a, with a different set of parameters, I suppose. And I really want to explore that. And so this has been really helpful talking to you about it because it kind of, it makes, it just deepens my appreciation for the affinity between these practices and these forms. And um, the more I think about it and the more I speak about it, especially speaking about it with someone like you who also is versed in both of these domains, it just impresses upon me the fact that like, oh my God, these are, these are of a piece. And we need to figure out, you know, I'd like to figure out how best to, I don't know, how best to make use of their affinity. I suppose. Uh, well, I think you're certainly onto something with the performance of the dialogues. To be honest, that that sounds like a really, um, a really rich area to unlock something. And I guess there's probably some bits will be better than others, or some maybe dialogues will be more amenable to it. But, um, yeah, because it, it does seem to have all the structures. Again, it's dialogical. It's imaginal that you're playing a character. It's also mindful in a sense. I mean, you could couple it with some sort of meditation. And then there's embodied aspects in the choreography, the way you move. Um, and yeah, if you can get people to suspend disbelief and get into it kind of motivationally, um, I think it would have the, yeah, the potential to really unlock, even, especially for people that aren't actors maybe and that aren't used to doing that in a sense. It creates a, that kind of cognitive flexibility. So I'd, I'd love to hear how that goes, to be honest. It sounds, um, I think it's a really good idea. Thank you. Thank you for, for your encouragement. And uh, ah, I'd like to talk again about it if, uh, if, you're, uh, if you're interested in that, if you're open to that. I think that would be fun. I think I, want, I really want to start tracking yeah. this. And, and you have such a, you're so conversant in it and you have a facility with it. Mm. And that's exciting. Yeah. Absolutely. It would be a great honor, Christopher. And thank you so much for uh, coming on. This has been, I think I really needed this today. You know, I didn't realize, I didn't realize before that I did, but. I feel like this was um, really, yeah, made so many connections. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate you inviting me on. And this was, this is a fantastic, this is a fantastic chat. And I honestly, I think I needed it too. This is just, this just became the best part of my day. And it's given me back <laughs> a lot of energy that was depleted doing all kinds of other things. So thank you for that. <laughs>